0: 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you have a Bible. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. Don't spill. (laughs) It's the blood of Jesus. Don't don't do it. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you have a Bible. If not, we've got the screen if you're lazy. And um, we've got uh, some work to do, and we've got to do it quick um, because everybody took my time. Thank you, Dan. Um, Here we go. Um, Paul... Is about to warn the Corinthians. And we get to read the letter, the part of the letter where Paul is about to give them a warning. And so if you would join with me really quick, um, he is still on a, uh, a conversation with the Corinthians about going back to the temple. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you understand that there's this language that Paul is using about food, sacrifice to idols, we've talked about idol worship, we've talked about what all that means, and now Paul is going to warn them. And if it feels like in the last few uh, chapters Paul's been on a tangent, um, he's not on a tangent anymore, and he's about to just lay out his point, okay? You with me? Yes, all right, good. Good. Paul says, chapter 10, verse 1, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. And he's basically saying, you need to get this. You need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, um, and uh, let me just stop there for a second. When he says our ancestors, he's actually talking about uh, the Jewish people, but really what he's saying is is now that you are a part of Christ, now that you uh, follow Jesus, you are a part of uh, the story of the people of God. Um, and so Paul, has, has he's going to bring up the uh, people of Israel. He's going to bring up the Exodus. And, and he says this, our ancestors were all under the cloud. And, and if you remember in the story of Exodus, there's uh, God is leading the people, okay, out of Egypt, and there's the pillar, uh, there's the cloud by day, and then there's the pillar of fire by night. Do you remember the story? And, and he, he's reminding them of the stories, the, the Exodus story, um, that, and God's spirit was with them over Israel, uh, with them, guiding them, encouraging them, leading them, and he says this, and that they all passed through the sea. And we know that to be the Red Sea. We know that to be uh, that that they they kind of came up to the Red Sea. Uh, The Egyptian army's closing in on behind them. And God opens up a way of rescue for the people of Israel. And he drowns their enemies, drowns their pursuers. And in verse 2, it says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, which is really strange language, really interesting imagery, but the the idea behind this is Paul is actually up to something here. Paul is actually reminding them that they were baptized into Moses, baptized into the community, that they, um, much like the way we baptize, um, they identified with a new leader, a new king, um, a, a new allegiance, and much like we baptize, that's how it works too. Like When you get baptized, um, when you go down into the water and then come back up, you are you are signifying a new allegiance, a new leader, a new identity, a new community, okay? And Paul's reminding them of that. He said, they all ate the same spiritual food. Uh, okay, remember in chapter two when we talked about the word spiritual and how Paul uses that differently than you and I use that? Uh, in, in our day and age, spiritual means something like um, some sort of a... Inter like an like an inner feeling, something mystical, experiential kind of thing. Um, that's not what the New Testament means by spiritual. that's not what Paul means by spirit. Does anybody remember what we talked about when we talked about spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? It actually means to be animated by the spirit, right? So when we say spiritual in our day and age, we, we're, Paul's actually meaning something so different. Um, it, when he's writing this. So he says this, they all ate the same spiritual food and spiritual food for the people of Israel. Remember, what was that? Manna. Manna, Manna from heaven. Okay, spiritual, spiritual wonder bread that came down. That's used, I used to think of, about that as a kid, just like, because I was never allowed to have white bread because it was really bad for you. I'm like, man, people of Israel had white bread whenever they wanted it, right? <laughs> and so they had, they had wonder bread all the time. And... Um, <laughs> Off track. Paul calls it spiritual food, meaning there was something more than just food involved. There was something powerful involved with that. And then spiritual drink. Paul talks about this this idea that they drank from the rock, and it says he drank from the rock that accompanied them, um, which is super strange language. Um, this actually comes from, like, Uh, rabbinic teaching that um, in in the desert, the beginning of the desert experience, there's this striking of the rock experience and water flows from the rock and the people drank and it was really cool. And then later on, 40 years later in the desert, uh, Moses strikes the rock again and, and water flows from the rock, and, and so rabbinic teaching has been like, okay, what happened in the middle? They're in the desert. And so, so there's some, some interesting, legendary teaching that said the rock came with them, like just followed them, which if you're a skeptic, and uh, I am as well, um, ultimately that's not the point. the point. The point is that Paul co-ops the story. And Paul puts meaning on the rock, meaning that the rock was Christ. That in the midst of this desert experience, Messiah Jesus was there alive and working and sustaining and and giving spiritual nourishment to the people, caring for them and pointing towards their promised future. That's what Paul's saying living water coming from the rock. Interesting story in in John's gospel at the uh, end of the Feast of Tabernacles. We actually talked about this in our 10-man table the other day. The end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles is this this beautiful eight-day feast that the people would celebrate reminding them of the Exodus, reminding them that in, in, in the desert, they lived in tabernacles and that God sustained them and moved them. And at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, what would happen is right outside there's the water gate where you'd come into the uh, Jerusalem and you'd go in and out of this gate to get water. And on this one particular day at the end of the festival, it said it was the greatest day of the festival in, in John's gospel, that Jesus stands up on this day, the same day that the priest Takes water and pours it on the altar, and the people celebrate and thank God for supplying them with water in a very agricultural, very uh, water driven society. And Jesus stands up and in a loud voice says, If anybody's thirsty, right, let them come to me. And he talks about himself being living water. This is what Paul is referring to. And so Paul does all of this stuff, and then he turns the tables. And he drops a bomb in the next verse. He says this in verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What? Like this is like, a, like an interesting point. This is actually a direct quote from Numbers. Numbers where the Israelites, after years and years of following Yahweh, turn away from Yahweh into idolatry and sin, and instead of stepping into the promised land that God had promised for them, they end up dying in the desert, and it says their bodies were scattered all over the desert. See what Paul's doing here. Let's catch what Paul's doing. Paul is telling the story of the people of Israel in such a way as to show a parallel between them and the Corinthian followers of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And let's look at that. I mean, like, wow, look at this. Look at this. Israelites are baptized into the waters of the Red Sea, baptized into Moses and into the nation of Israel. You Corinthians are baptized into Jesus and into the family of God. The people of Israel received a new identity and bought with a price, and you Corinthians received a new identity and were bought with a price. The Spirit was over the people of Israel with a pillar of uh, fire and a cloud. The Spirit is with you, is over you, is among you, is in you. You were given spiritual food and spiritual drink, the people of Israel were, and then you were as well as the people of, of followers of Jesus. You were given communion, this beautiful a experience of the table that we're going to experience here, the, the bread and the, the body and the, and the wine. Look at the parallels. Between the, that's what he's setting up, a parallel thing. Hebrews, Corinthians. Paul says, but not all the parallels are good, right? Not all the parallels are good. Because if all these things are parallel, so is the last one. And so just like the Hebrews, you Corinthian followers of Jesus have the potential to turn away from God and to sin and then to end up being scattered in the desert. That's what Paul's saying. All these things are true of you that are good. Same thing with the Hebrews and you, but you have the opportunity to end up just like them. Verse 6, he says, Now these things occurred as examples. The word examples actually means patterns, meaning the way the world operates, meaning it happened then, thousands of years ago in the desert, and it still happens. Like, it still goes like this. It still has a way of working like this, meaning people of Israel, a people rescued by God in a miraculous way, Walked with God, saw God move, experienced God at work in them, through them, in real, meaningful, miraculous ways, right? And then, one day, they turned away. He says, Paul says, these are examples. It happened and it still happens, right? He says these are examples. He says, why? To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. That phrase, setting our hearts, actually means craving or lusting after evil things. So those moments in our lives where you, where you crave and lust after evil things, it, listen, if God's Spirit lives in you, The deepest desires of your heart actually are godly desires, but it doesn't mean those are the strongest desires, right? Like if the Spirit of God lives in you, your deepest desires are to become like Christ and and to see that play out in your life, but there are still things in our lives that are really strong and really right in our face and really powerful. And what Paul is saying is that the Corinthian church is flirting with the exact same sins as the Israelites did in the desert. And he's built up to this point over the last couple chapters. And the four sins the the Corinthian church is facing are actually laid out by Paul right here. First one is this, idolatry. This has been a theme all throughout the letter Paul says in verse 7, do not be idolaters. And then he says this phrase that's going to repeat itself in the next four verses. "As, As some of them were, okay? As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Story goes, Exodus 32, Moses is on top of the mountain. Israel's down below in the valley. They get bored. Aaron makes a golden calf it starts to get crazy. <laughs> you know, there's what, what pagan revelry means is, is actually something that's a little bit more than PG-13 in the room. Um, and so there's this gross depravity that just starts to happen inside the people of Israel. And Paul says that idolatry, okay, this is, this is why you say no to idolatry because it, it pulls things out of you that, that are not good. And, and so that is what happens when God's people turn to idolatry. The second thing Paul lists in, in verse 8 is sexual immorality. He says this, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This comes out of Numbers 25. And the story goes, uh, women from Moab, which is a uh, the country um, on the East side uh, of Israel, kind of out in the desert. Um, this is where, this is why the story of Ruth and Naomi is so powerful, um, because this land, this this nation, was seen to be by the people of Israel, is very dark, very evil, and there's a story where. Uh, a group of the women come from Moab, seduce the men of Israel. They have sex with them. Then they begin to eat meat, sacrifice to the idols. They turn their hearts towards the gods of Moab. And as a result, God sends a plague and the plague kills over 20,000 Israelites. And that's what happens, Paul says, when God's people turn to sexual immorality. Let's keep going. Testing. Paul says, we should not test Christ. And then he says, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. So in Paul's mind, the opposite of trusting God is testing God. And instead of submitting to God, even in really hard and difficult times, there's this this idea in testing God that says when it's like when you argue with God, when you shake your fist at the sky, when you treat God like a like a vending machine. And if you ever had, like, punched your number into the vending machine and it doesn't come out, right? And then you start, maybe it's just me. (laughs) And you try to bend God in an angry, bitter way to your desires and your frustrations. In Numbers 21, there's a story about Israel and they're questioning and they're arguing and they're testing God and they're just being just whiners and punks. And God sends poisonous snakes into the camp. I don't know why I'm laughing. That's just like, it's just not, doesn't sound normal, right? Poisonous snakes come into the camp and kill thousands of people. And, and that, Paul says that's what happens when God's people turn to testing God. And the last one is grumbling. Paul says, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. And he's this idea here is this, this grumbling and murmuring and speaking under your breath or whining and 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 I, I don't I don't do this. I have friends that do this. Um, <laughs> this idea behind this is Paul's like, okay, you've been rescued. You've been saved by God. You've seen God do miraculous things. He's supplied you with food and water. Uh, he he knows your. He's told you his promised future for you. And all you do is murmur under your breath, and all you do is complain. And all you do is say, "I need this and I need that. I need a new group of friends, I need a new identity, I need a new spouse." And Paul is saying, "Don't grumble." That is what happens when God's people turn to grumbling. It always ends. All of these things always end really sad. And Paul here's what Paul's saying. That is always what happens when God's people get into idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling. Listen, these are hard things. God, scripture says, God kills people he saved. Let the weight of that hit you. Holy cow, that's in the Bible. God kills people that he saved. Paul is telling the story of Israel in such a way to show the parallels. Why? Because it happened, like I said, and it still happens. So with Israel, the idolatry, and the Corinthians, and the temple, and the sexual immorality in Israel, and the sexual immorality with the temples, we got into this in chapter six and seven, and the testing God in Israel, and then the people of Corinth are in the middle of a famine, and some people believe that there's this the rich were throwing parties for the poor and then instead of trusting God, they were going to the temple and eating food sacrificed to idols. And then there's grumbling in Israel and then the grumbling and the nasty letters sent to Paul by way of the companions. Wow, look at the parallels. Paul's saying, listen, wake up. This story doesn't end well. It doesn't end well at all. In verse 11, he says, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So where, were the, where was this all written? This is the Bible of Jesus. This is the Torah. This is the scriptures as warnings, as blinking dashboards. He says, look what happens when God's people get into sexual immorality and idolatry and testing God and grumbling. It doesn't end well. And there are examples and warnings for us For Paul, he says that, he believes that for you and I, we live in a fulfillment, the fulfillment of the ages, meaning that we live at the apex of the story, that that now we're on the other side of the the death and resurrection of Jesus, and and as new people of God, we have this new identity, and we can see the story and the examples and the warnings, and we can learn how to live and live out this life of following Jesus and what the implications are. And what's really important is when we dive into stories that are really hard in the Old Testament, people always ask me, how do you read these? Like, did that really happen? How do I read these? Does it really mean anything for us today? I think it's really important to remember how to read Scripture because reading Scripture as one story, okay, And then reading the particular stories in Scripture as part of the overarching story is really important. Because if you just parachute into a story, you're like, what's going on? This is nuts. There's snakes and (laughs) plagues and stuff. But the other part of the story that's really important is reading the story knowing that you're part of the story. And that's really important. See, we, you need to understand now as a follower of Jesus, you actually are part of the Exodus story. That you are now adopted into the family of God. That you have this part to play in all that God is doing in the world. You are not part, this is really important. Because I think a lot of people get sideways in this, especially in a very individualistic, western, consumeristic society. We think that we invite God to be a part of our story, right? Like, God, be a part of my story here, the story I'm writing. God's like, no, no, no. I'm inviting you to part of my story. I'm inviting the, the whole of you into my story. Don't invite me into yours. That's not gonna go well. Don't use me to make your story better. See, most of us read that story backwards. It's really important that you hear this. Trying to make your life relevant to this story. Don't make this story relevant to your life. Does that make sense? So a lot of people get confused when they read the Old Testament because they're like, where where do I see myself? How How does this help me? Now, the the really important thing is to study and wrestle with the story together, but there's a real big warning here. Don't spiritualize the story. Don't make the story an allegory. Don't make it bits and pieces of typology for the text to speak to you, meaning this. A lot of people look at stories like the desert and stuff, and they think, oh, Moses was out in the desert. He must have been going through a really dry time in his soul. And so am I. No, he was in the desert. Like, it's hot. And it wasn't like a day or two of, man, I just really feel dry. No, no, it it was real dry, real desert. Like, real story, real people, like, real desert interacting with a real God who does real things in history. Don't try to allegorize it. What we need to do is look for parallels. Like Paul is teaching us right here. Paul is taking the Old Testament and showing the Corinthians a parallel with their life. That's what Paul is doing. And here's what he's saying. And here's his main point Israel's story does not have to be your story. Corinthians, your, the Corinthian story for us, does not have to be our story, right? And there's really two ways to learn. In my opinion, you can learn on the pages of Scripture and avoid some things, or you can learn on the streets. And, and start to see the effects of the decisions that you make outside of scripture to really uh, damage your life and the lives of people around you. And so Paul is saying, learn from the story. Learn from Israel. Verse 12, he says, so if you think you are standing firm, here's the warning, be careful that you do not fall. This is Paul's main point. If you think you're standing firm, if you think you got it, and he talks about knowledge at the beginning of the letter, he's like, if you think you know things, you really don't know. And this is where the NIV actually blunders, in my opinion. The word fall is kind of, it it makes it sound like trip and fall. It actually means die. (laughs) A little harsher translation. (laughs) Be careful that you don't die, right? And and Paul means if you're in sin, meaning if you're like the Hebrews or if you're a Corinthian and you're you're in this blatant, rebellious, idolatry, sexual immorality going on, he says, be careful. You may die. What does that mean? It, It means die, it means experience death in your life. Like Israel, I shared this earlier, it says God kills people, he saves. What does that mean? This raises all kinds of really uncomfortable questions. Classic question, if you've been around church for a long time. Can I lose, can you lose, can I lose my salvation? What does that mean? Like, lose? Like, my car keys? Like, oh, I don't know where my salvation is. I gotta go find it. Oh, there it is. You know? Put like a little GPS on it, your salvation, right? And you can find it. Um, That classic line, once saved, always saved. You guys heard that before? What does that mean? You know? Book of John. John talks about uh, no one will be able to snatch you out of God's grasp. It's a really comforting, really cool thought. But what if you wanted to crawl out? Right? Or will God just hold you against your will and never, he just won't let you go? He loves you so much. You know? Or will God let you walk away? These are like really interesting questions. Like what happens to the 23,000 people? Where did they go? Right? The story doesn't answer that. You're like, well, you're going to give us the answer, right? No. I'm not going mean, to. If you want to go listen to the Bible Answer Man and get your all your P's and Q's in the... Here's what's beautiful about Scripture. There's tension, right? Scripture tells us that everybody's going to be saved, and then it says, "Nope, there's a narrow gate. What do we do with that? Jesus came for everybody, but only What does that mean? Well, well, there's verses that say, "Once saved, always saved." but then there's verses that say, "No, you can walk away." What do we do with that? We live in the tension is what we do with it. Because the tension's where the meat is. That's where the joy is. That's where the transformation is. When you live in the tension, um, and this is really important for us to understand. See, the authors in the Bible all the time, the biblical, biblical authors, do two different things simultaneously all over the place. On the first hand, they warn followers of Jesus of judgment All the time, the prophets, Jesus does, everybody, they warn followers of Jesus all the time of judgment. We're really good in America of warning people who don't follow Jesus of judgment, but scripture warns followers of Jesus of judgment, okay? Which is really interesting. But at the same time, those authors also comfort followers of Jesus of salvation at the same time. Look at verse 12. Paul says, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't die. In verse 13, he says, but he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What? What? Which one? What's going on, Paul? Seriously, should I be scared or is God faithful? Yes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, you got to let it get messy. We need to live in the tension. See, questions about salvation are really questions about God, right? They're really questions about God. What kind of God is Jesus? Is, is God a being to be feared? Lots of people say no, but someone should, <laughs> is God someone to be scared of? Uh, scripture says all over the place, I mean, you can go do a word study, Fear the fear of the Lord, right? And we talked about this a number of weeks back and people are like, ah, it just means reverence, you know. Really? Because it says fear. Like it doesn't say, you know, just awe, you know, fear. Or is God love and gentle and kind and merciful and does his heart break for the poor and the weak and does God love broken people? Yes. Yes. To all of it. Here's the idea and the tension behind what Paul's saying. You should be scared to death and sleep like a baby at the same time. This idea of like, there's this, rev- like this beautiful fear of God that, that causes us to, to look at our life really seriously and yet rest in God's faithfulness at the same time, right? So some of you in the, here, in the room probably need to hear, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You're like, man, I listened to Caleb, I'm baptized. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I really love my money. Mm. Paul says, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. And others of you are sitting here and you're like, I'm scared. I'm like, I... I hear this, I I look at my life, and I'm like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this temptation and this, this, this stuff that's pulling at me, these desires, these cravings, these things that are just pulling at me? Paul says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It's like this gulp of fresh air. Paul lays out Israel, lays out, hey, you're just like Israel. But guess what? God is faithful. First thing he says, you will be tempted. It's just part of it. Temptation is not sin. You will experience it. You will will experience those pulls and the cravings and the desires. And those will feel like their strongest desires in your life. But God is faithful. He's like, you are not alone. The second thing he says, like the human bent is to think that you are the only one that has ever dealt with this type of fight in your life. Right? That no one knows what it's like to be you. That no one knows uh, what it's like to struggle with your sexuality and your identity and to overcome abuse and to salvage of marriage with someone like him or her. Like, like you don't know what it's like. And Paul says, you are not alone. He's not trying to downplay the gravity of their struggles. He's just to show solidarity. He says, come out of hiding. You are not alone. Other people struggle. It's time to be a part of this community and to to reach out. And then he says, there's always a way out. And there's always a way of escape. And that word escape is actually a Greek word for a military, it's like a military term that says like when the army is all surrounding you, that there's a way out. That there's an escape route, a tunnel, a pass. And you always stand a fighting chance and you have that's the beautiful part of it. But Paul's saying you don't have an excuse because there's always going to be a chance for you to, to, to escape it. The reality is, like a lot of us need to realize, is when we sin, God is close. And when we sin, God is, when, we are, when we're tempted to sin, God is still close throughout the whole thing. And you have this opportunity to take God's hand, to reach out, to pull you out fiercely. God is always right there. And you have to get free and you have to get out. And this climax verse of the whole thing is verse 14. And Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Here's that, word, that, that phrase again. It's been coming up over and over and over and over again. So my prayer for us is that you may you, may I, may we take the way of escape take the way of escape. If you think you are standing firm, watch out. May you live in the love of God and the fear of God at the same time. A little quick story is before we go to communion, 28 years ago it was my 16th birthday. On my 16th birthday, I got to climb Half Dome. You know, Half Dome is this huge, giant rock in Yosemite. It's granite, I didn't climb this route, because I'm not an idiot, but on the, <laughs> there's a trail that, re, that leads around the back of Half Dome, and if you've ever been to Yosemite, it's the best national park on earth, and I'll fight you for that. Anyhow, so here's the thing. You can climb up Half Dome, and you have to get up there before noon, so you can take pictures and... All that kind of stuff, because you have to get down before the thunder and the lightning and everything starts rolling in, because you don't want to be on a giant rock when lightning hits. And what you do on the backside of Half Dome to get up there is there is a set of, of cables, metal cables that are like handrails, and then every about four or five feet, there's like another uh, kind of like... A board or step, and you have to get to that. And it is steep, and on either side of these handrails is a cliff to your death, <laughs> and you are one at a time walking behind somebody up. You are clutching these handrails with gloves. It is intense. It is adrenaline rush. It is the most amazing thing. You get to the top, and if you're, if you're really, really, really an idiot. You walk up to the edge, but most people get on their hands and their knees and they crawl, I mean their belly just to peek off a 3,000 foot sheer face to the bottom. And Creation. You're in the midst of the most beautiful view you've ever seen. You can see clouds rest and Yosemite Falls and all these things. And you're just like in awe of creation. And creation is rock and sand and wind and lightning and thunder. And I love going to Yosemite. I love going back up there. And and, and it's all these things. And then you think to yourself, if this is creation, what is the creator like? And you live in this moment out there. And whenever you're in nature and you see the awe of nature and you say, Wow. And the fear of God and yet at the same time God is faithful. may you realize, may, may you experience that in your life And if you think you're standing firm, watch out. Let me pray God thank you.